Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. I am not Nate Hobart, and so I'm going to steal this over here. Is that okay? I'm going to mess up Jeff Larson. Oh, man. Oh. But I am the youth. Oh, here we go. I am the youth and family guy, so that means I have, I have uh, a little bit more volume to my voice, and so I told Alan back there to uh, keep his, his finger close to the dial of muting me as needed. But I'm excited to be here. Uh, it's a joy to serve at the Vine Church um, as kind of the youth family city group guy and uh, to hang out with a lot of students here uh, this morning as well. Um, uh, I help uh, Madison Multiply kind of has a collective um, youth group called The Basement uh, where we really uh, call students to a place of belonging, of wanting to see, desiring to see students really dig deep and have strong foundations, solid foundations, so that when they are sent as, as high school seniors, uh, they have a, a faith foundation that is firm and, and, and working, partnering with parents uh, to see that happen. So it's a joy uh, to serve in that way. We have an awesome youth leader team. Uh, many thanks to, to you. Um, we, went, we had our first ever mission trip this summer to Ecuador, um, and it was a blast um, just on one level, but also just really significant for God's kingdom. Kingdom, uh, to have this Ecuadorian camp where about 50 or 60 Ecuadorian students uh, and leaders came with our group, and we just had a week of camp. It was so much fun, um, and it was also rich as we looked at the book of Esther and what it looks like to have a faith that endures through times that are really challenging. Um, what does it look like to have that dependence on God? And we know of one student who made a profession of faith, and so we praise God for that. But many of you guys gave and supported that trip, so thank you. Thank you, thank you uh, for that. Um, again, my name is James. I have a wife and three kids, one on the way, coming in Thanksgiving. And so our, our home is lively and loud uh, and a lot of fun. Um, and so a little bit about myself and um, if there are rising sixth graders, or even if you're in fifth grade, hang on, come to the basement. It's going to be fun. Uh, in a few years for you. But as was said, uh, this is uh, the Madison Multiply Sermon Series, week one, uh, which we've entitled, as you can see there, uh, Prayers uh, for Our City. And uh, during this series, we're going to explore five biblical prayers that call us in sharing God's heart for his kingdom to come in Madison as it is in heaven. And in this series, we're going to learn how to pray for boldness, and unity, and, and justice, and mercy, and for additional laborers. And each sermon will explore what God has to say about his heart on these matters from God's word, why it's important to join God's heart in that, and ultimately what is our response to God. And so as we engage in this series together as a collection of churches, this is an opportunity to really remember our shared mission that we have as a network. And our mission as a network is to saturate Madison and Dane County with healthy, gospel-centered churches, plural, who are making disciples, engaging their communities, and planting more churches. And through this series, we're living out this vision one prayer at a time, quite literally. And for us today, the message, the biblical prayer for us concerns unity. 
dwelling in unity. Dwelling in unity. So let's just pray one more time as we turn our attention to God's word. Father God, I thank you for this morning that your mercies are new every morning. And Lord, I pray that you would open by the power of your spirit, that you would open your word to our hearts and our heart to your word. Lord, prune back any hedge of disbelief or doubt or distraction that we might see you most clearly right now in this moment. Would you transform us by the power of your spirit and word? In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I recently read in an article about a young pastor who took over as a uh, took over a pastorate at a church. And as he came into this new church as a young pastor, he found that the church was deeply divided. Some of the people wanted to sit down during his weekly pastoral prayer. And some of them, the others, wanted to have everyone stand during this prayer. The people who wanted to sit down were convinced that they had it right, telling this young pastor that this was the tradition ever since the church was started. But the people who wanted to stand were convinced of the exact same thing. This young pastor couldn't figure out what to do with this divided congregation, so he went about locating who this founding pastor was, and he discovered that this this guy lived in a nursing home now, an old guy, and he went there, and he said to the founding pastor, he said, tell me, when the church was founded, when you began this church, did people sit down during your weekly pastoral prayer? And the founding pastor replied, no, no, they didn't. And so the young pastor exclaimed, he said, great, so that's the tradition. People stand up during prayer. And the old pastor said, no, that's not the tradition. And the young pastor was confused. And he looked again at this old pastor and said, hey, listen, I I need help. I'm 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 young at this, and it's absolutely chaos in the congregation. Some people think we should sit, and some people think we should stand, and they're just at each other's throats. And the old pastor looked at the young pastor in the eyes and said, now that's the tradition. From the very beginning, it's been a divided congregation. There's nothing quite like experiencing unity, is there? If you've been in a church that's filled by disagreement and disunity, you understand fully the blessing of unity. As you and I experience a country that seems to be increasingly divided by our politics, we can wistfully remember back to a time of greater national unity. When you and I find ourselves in the midst of divisive relationships in home or at work, our values and our value and desire for unity and peace, it just skyrockets, doesn't it? There's nothing quite like unity. Why? Well, because unity, this coming together in a harmony of relationships, is our design, God's design. If you're not yet there, turn to Psalm 133 as Charlotte read. Psalm 133. And in these three very short verses, the psalmist is going to paint not one, 
but two compelling pictures of unity that I pray in return leaves us saying, I've got to have that. I want to be a part of that. So, so here's our direction this morning. One, we, we want to discover what God's heart is concerning unity. What's God's heart? Secondly, why is it important that I actually pray for this? And thirdly, what is our response? You with me? God's heart, why is it important? What do I do? So what is God's heart? Verse 1. It says, Behold, and that's Old Testament language for, Listen up, y'all. I'm about ready to say something, Hudson, and you better be listening, right? Behold. See, this is not good when you come to my youth group, right? Because I know you now. <laughs> Behold. And I like Huston, Huston, Hudson a lot. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. So what's God's heart here in verse 1? It's very plain. Brothers dwelling in unity. And this, this expression communicates two realities of God's heart. First, as you look at this term, brothers, it communicates this objective reality that formally binds two people together as one, whether by blood or by covenant, they're of the same family, brothers. And then secondly, the term dwelling. It communicates that these brothers, this same family, have intentionally chosen to be in proximity to one another. They dwell together, not apart. So, so you put these two realities together and you possess the fullness of God's heart. That his people, the family of God, would dwell together in unity. So if, if that's the heart of God, you'd expect as you open up your Bibles that the beginning stories, you'd find stories upon stories upon stories of, of brotherly love and harmony and unity, these examples, rich examples for us to live by as you open your Bible, but it's not there, is it? The very first brothers mentioned in the Bible, Cain and Abel, is not a story of brotherly love, but of brotherly hate. Of brotherly envy, of brotherly murder. Flip, flip a few more pages and you find the younger son of, of Abraham, Isaac, ridicules the older son, Ishmael, so much so that Abraham has to pack the bags of Ishmael and send him away. A story or two later, we read of two more brothers, Jacob and Esau, twin brothers who from the get-go right out of the womb like spar and jostle all the time for the control of the family. Continue on. You have the story of Joseph, sold into slavery, left to die by his brothers, who were consumed by jealousy and contempt. The Genesis record's only the beginning. I'm just getting started. Moses experienced betrayal from his own brother and sister. David, who wrote this psalm, was hated so much so by his father-in-law that he tried to kill him. And then later on, David's kicked out of his kingdom by his own son. And Jesus, his own brothers, possessed such contempt towards his earthly ministry that they labeled Jesus as crazy. Jesus' brothers. 
Jesus, you are out of your mind. From the very beginning of time, all of humankind have pushed against God's design for unity. And we see it so clearly as we flip through the pages of our Bible. And that disunity is driven by a self-focus and pride. Both of which are of great supply amongst all of us as humankind. And we don't have to go far to find it. It's in every single one of us. So if we can't look to one another, we can't look to ourselves for this unity that this psalm sings of, rejoices in, where do we look? Well, turn with me to Ephesians. The Apostle Paul has something to say about it. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. And making known, this is God, God making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to do what? To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth earth. What Paul is saying to us is that unity has been God's great plan throughout all time. And it's entirely, this unity is entirely connected to the person of Jesus. It's by Jesus's life and death that we have the unity with God our Father and that we may have unity with one another. And Paul explains it later on in Ephesians chapter 2. If we were to flip the page, if I hadn't gone all the way back to Psalms, it's just a flip of the page. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13. Paul says this, but now in Christ Jesus, it's connected to Jesus, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us, plural, both one, singular, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself what? One new man in place of the two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And crushing his own body, Jesus crushes every hostility between Jew and Gentile and creates a new humanity, a new people, the people of God. You see, unity and true, true unity or lasting unity is never achieved or produced within or by ourselves. That will never work. That will never last. But lasting unity is a divine gift of a Godward gaze. To find true unity, we have to look outside of ourselves and gaze upon God and the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And don't fail to see that Jesus purchased this union, and it wasn't cheap. It cost him his life. But that is God's heart. That is God's heart, that his people, a diverse people, would have this Godward gaze dwelling together in perfect harmony or unity. So if that's God's heart, why why should I specifically pray for this in this church or in my church? Why should I pray for this? Well, again, to answer this, look again at verse 1. 
And look at the two words that the psalmist, that David describes this unity. He says that this unity is good and pleasant, doesn't he? How good and pleasant it, it is when brothers dwell in unity. David's saying this unity is both good and pleasant. And if you think about it, not many things in life are both good and pleasant. A lot of things in life we find good are actually unpleasant. And a lot of things we might find pleasant are just not good. For instance, take this, broccoli. It's good for my nutrition, but it's not pleasant to my belly, right? But ice cream, that's very pleasant to my belly, but it's not good for my nutrition, right? But here the psalmist says unity is both good and pleasant. When the psalmist expresses that unity is good, the psalmist is really expressing how life ought to be lived. This is how life ought to be lived. It's, this unity is, is composed of goodness. It's morally right. But unity is not just something that I ought to do. The psalmist says at the same time, unity is pleasant. So check this out. Unity is actually what I desire in my life. Like that bowl of ice cream, unity is exactly what I want. It's pleasant. I rejoice in it. I celebrate it. And bonus, it's good. It's morally right. In the words of John Piper, you can't beat his line here. Unity is both our duty and our delight. Unity is both our duty and our delight. And to amplify how this is true, the psalmist is going to paint for us two pictures. This is good. This is good. Two pictures. Picture one is of beard oil, like beard. I've grown up my beard just for this. Beard oil. Picture two, Mountain Dew. This sounds like the perfect middle school boy's devotion, doesn't it? Verse 2, this is the painting number one, beard oil. It is like, well, what is like? Well, we're talking about good and pleasant unity, right? So good and pleasant unity is like something. Good and pleasant unity is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, I doubt you've ever heard unity compared to anointing oil dripping down on a beard. Like, maybe this is one of those abstract paintings, right? Like, what the heck? What's going on here? That was my initial response. But trust me, there's something here, and I want you to see it because it's a fantastically compelling picture that amplifies our calling to unity. To find the meaning of this painting, it, it would be wise of us to consider why the psalmist has chosen this image. And so let's consider different aspects of this anointing oil. Several different aspects of this anointing oil. Well, one, given the hot, dry, Middle Eastern climate that this was written in, this oil dripping down the head and beard and onto the clothes, it really conveys like a soothing aspect. It offers a picture of needed relief and refreshment to like sun-parched and dry skin. 
perhaps symbolic of just divine blessing that God bestows on the people of God. Aspect one. Secondly, we, we could consider just the priestly task of slaughtering animals that the priests had every, every day, just slaughtering animals. And you can imagine the stench that comes with that, right? So this oil, which if you were to read in Exodus 30, tells us is, is created from the finest of all spices, it would have produced a, a wonderful fragrance or aroma. And, and thirdly, and most importantly, given Aaron's role as the high priest, really the first priest of this nation, an anointing of this oil carries an aspect of divine sacredness or holy consecration. So if you're if you're to flip back to Exodus 30 and read this full account, part of it you would see here, it'll be on the screen, as you, uh, Moses, shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, and they may serve me as priests. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. So we have symbolic blessing, we have fragrant aroma, and we have this divine and holy consecration, all wonderful. And really good aspects of this oil. But I'm not convinced any of these aspects is actually the emphasis of this metaphor. Why? Because I think the emphasis of this metaphor is a lot less on the actual oil itself and much more to do with what the oil is doing in this metaphor. And what is the oil doing in this metaphor? Well, it's running down on everything, like dripping on everything, right? It, it begins on the hair of Aaron onto his face and onto his beard and then onto his robes. And if you ask me, this sounds a lot less like the sacred moment that it is. This is a very sacred moment. But it sounds a lot less like that and much more like a game I'd play on youth group messy game night, right? Right? I don't have much experience in anointing, but I'd assume squirting like a small little dot, like shampoo or whatever, on the head, like that would suffice in like this anointing ritual, right? What purpose is there in oil spilling down on the head and onto the beard and like all over the clothes? Like what's the purpose in that? That's just being messy, right? But hear me now. In the mess of the oil lies the reason the psalmist has chosen this particular image. The reason it's all so messy with oil everywhere is because there's so much oil. Well, duh, that's obvious. But don't miss it. Don't miss it. It's messy because of the vast, vast, vast excess of oil being dispensed on the head of Aaron. Is this picture coming into focus for you? Aaron's a sinner, just like you and I. Aaron is a sinner, and he doesn't even deserve a single drop of this special and precious anointing oil on his head. And yet he receives not just a drop, but an excessive pouring of this oil all over his head and onto his robes. It's this excessive pouring of this most precious anointing oil. 
that is the, the emphasis. And excessive means that it's more than what's needed. Excessive means it's, it's more than what's deserved. That's the comparison that's being made in regards to our unity. That this good and pleasant unity, the oneness of the church, is an excessive gift from God. It's more than we deserve. Every day that the church lives and ministers in deep and joyful camaraderie, we receive a gift far beyond what we deserve. We can't make it, but God excessively pours it out on us. Do you see this picture? Picture one, painting one, beard oil. An excessive gift from God. Painting two is what I'm calling Mountain Dew. Mountain Dew. Verse three. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. So again, it is like, it's good and pleasant unity is like the dew on Hermon, which falls in the mountains of Zion. So to understand this painting, we actually have to get a little, uh, we have to understand geography. We have to understand a little bit of geography. And on the, on the screen will be, an, that's actually Mount Hermon as it is today. And it's at, at this time of writing, it was at the very northern border, the very northern border of David's kingdom in Israel. And it's an elevation of nine, over 9,000 feet. So it's very tall. You can see the snow up there. It's a very tall mountain. And 120 miles south of this mountain would be Zion or Jerusalem. And Hermon is four times, four times the height of what Mount Zion is. And if you're to Wikipedia, Mount Hermon, you, you'll, you'll see that it's, it's known for accumulating much dew. It's, it, it gives off a lot of moisture, but you can also see it, it has a, a lot of snow. And snow will, in season, melt. And below, below this mountain is actually the Jordan River. It feeds the Jordan River. And if we know a little bit of biblical geography, we know the Jordan River feeds into the Sea of Galilee as it, as it makes its way south and then eventually into the Dead Sea. And it's also important to know that Israel receives little to no rain in the summer. It's, 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 it's hot and dry, and, and they really have no rain in the summer months. And so because of this reality, if you type in Herman right now on your phone, you'll see this come up. It says it's the greatest resource of the entire region for the mountain captures by snowfall or just by the dew great amount of precipitation and becomes the vital source of life-sustaining water to all those who live south of the mountain. That's Wikipedia. Are you starting to understand the meaning of this painting? That in a dry and hot land, there's this life-sustaining stream running all the way from Hermon, 120 miles to Jerusalem. In a land with no other access to water, there's provision. From this mountain of life-sustaining uh, water that's freely flowing to every person in the land. That's the comparison that's being made to our Unity, that good and pleasant unity, the oneness of the church becomes, as it's one, becomes a life-giving, life-sustaining gift to all those around. Unity brings life. 
it refreshes, it satisfies. It's exactly what a parched land needs. In fact, I'd say this, that the visible unity of the church, of this church, of Madison Multiply, is the power of the gospel to our world, to Madison. Jesus spoke about this power of unity when he was on earth. In John 17, he says this. This is Jesus' words. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they will be one. Unity, unified, one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The unity of this church dwelling together in harmony is like life-giving, life-sustaining moisture coming down from Mount Hermon to all those around us in our neighborhood. With unity, the mission of God is accomplished. Without unity, we, not God, we fail. Painting to Mountain Dew, a life-giving, life-sustaining gift. So, so why do I join God's heart and pray for unity? Why would I use my time to pray for this church to be unified? Well, on one level, it's good and pleasant. It's my duty and my delight. But I hope that these two paintings, these two pictures of beard oil and Mountain Dew help maybe shape our prayers. And we use just this image as we pray that, Father, I pray for your gift of unity to drip down the faces of our elder team. It's okay to use that word, drip down, because we want that beard oil to drip. For it to drip down our elder team as they lead us in vision and mission. If the elder team's not unified, what kind of church do we have, right? I pray for your gift of unity to drip down the faces of our city group as we seek to demonstrate and declare the goodness of who you are, God. Father, I pray for unity amongst our network of churches and leaders and people that we might become streams of water, life-sustaining, life-giving mountain dew, freely flowing to all who live in this parched land in need of your eternal life. May our prayers be shaped by our understanding of God's heart in this biblical language of these paintings. May our prayers join God's heart, and also may our lives join God's heart. So as we look at our response to this, let's close with just a practical consideration. A practical consideration of how we might live our lives in light of this. Verse 3, the second half of it. It says, For there... The Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. And this, this is a, a profound blessing, right? A blessing that David says is, is life forevermore or eternal life. So, so where is the there a reference to? For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, Some people, way smarter than me, would argue that this is a reference to Zion, to Jerusalem, 
And that makes sense because if, if God dwells there, there would be blessing there, right? And they may be right. But as I've thought about it, I think that perhaps there's even more of a, a symbolic uh, reference to this. And that when God's people come together in perfect harmony, when we come together unified as one people, that the there, where, where, people's, uh, where, where God's people gather together as one, like there, as we gather, there is blessing, life forevermore. Meaning something happens when God's people gather on Sunday mornings, such as right now. Something happens. Something happens at, at City Group when we're together in the same room with people very different from us. Sometimes people who drive us crazy, but we're there together, possessing together this God word gaze on Jesus and the cross and the empty tomb. Author Jonathan Lehman writes this. Jesus organized Christianity this way. He means to center our Christianity around regularly gathering together, seeing one another, learning from one another, encouraging and correcting one another, and loving one another. Spiritual things happen when Christians stand elbow to elbow, breathe the same air, join our voices in song, hear the same sermon, and partake of the one bread. You look around and think, I'm not alone in this faith, what might we do together? For there, for there where we gather together as one, the Lord has commanded blessing life forevermore. A few Olympics ago, you may recall in the 5,000 meter women's race, a runner from New Zealand tripped and fell. And as she tripped, she also knocked out a U.S. runner running beside her. And the U.S. runner bent down and picked up this New Zealand runner and in doing so whispered into her ears saying, this is the Olympic Games. You can't give up. I love that picture. What if the church was more like that? What if we whispered in each other's ears, this is the life that God has called you to live. You can't give up. What if we were a community that spoke this truth into each other's lives? This is your marriage. You can't give up. These are your kids. You can't give up. This is your faith. You can't give up. What if that's what church was like? Gathered together with a Godward gaze, possessing this singular mission. For there where we gather together as one, the Lord has commanded blessing life forevermore. This was a psalm that was well known to God's people. It was sung often. If you were to look at the header in your Bible on Psalm 133, you would see it's entitled by a song of ascent. Three times a year, the people of Israel would journey to Jerusalem and, and celebrate a religious feast. And without access, surprisingly, to Spotify, they had no road trip playlist. So they had this written collection of songs that they'd sing together known as the Songs of Ascent. And Psalm 133 is a part of this. But here's why I'm ending with this. 
that as these ancient pilgrims, the people of God, made their way to Jerusalem at that time, singing Psalm 133, they would, they would look up to Mount Zion. Zion is about, I think it's 2,000 feet in, in height. So you would look up to Mount Zion, where you were headed, to a place where they were going, to where God resided in the temple of Jerusalem. And as they looked up, singing this song, they would notice as they're looking up all those around them, the people of God. And what are they doing? They're looking up as well to the same hill that they're striving towards, Zion. So today, God would have his pilgrims, you and I, possessing the same shared looking up Godward gaze. That's where we would look first. And in Jesus, whose very title means anointed, we now experience what those ancient pilgrims hoped for and longed for. What they sought in Zion, we now have in Jesus. And the precious anointing oil of God, which ran down the beard of Jesus, the anointed, has dripped onto his body, the church, you and I. God's family, a diverse people, brothers and sisters, old and young, married and single, rich and poor, who we pray, right, share this same Godward gaze, dwelling together in perfect unity. May that be our prayer. Father God, we praise you for this psalm, this reminder of your unity. we confess our own need for you in this moment. That in of ourselves, we cannot create this. We cannot obtain even our salvation, let alone harmony with one another. So Lord, we come to you confessing that. Lord, would you increase our affections and and, um, understanding of, of, of this gift, this precious gift that you've given to us of eternal life. And Lord, I pray for anyone in here by the power of your spirit and word, Lord, you call them to yourselves to be, belong to your family. God, we pray that to be so. Lord, we love you and worship you, and we pray that this church, that Madison multiply, that every church that seeks to make your name famous, Lord, would experience this dwelling together in unity, united as the people of God with a singular focus to see disciples made in our community. May your kingdom come in Madison as it is in heaven, Lord. We love you, we worship you, and it's your name we pray. Amen.